And then if you have a Bible, can I uh, ask you and encourage you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at Galatians 3 verses 15 to 25. And the title I've given to this morning's message is Law versus Promise. Okay, it's a bit of a showdown. Law versus Promise. And while you're turning there, we'll get to the passage in just a couple of minutes, but um, I've been thinking this week about things that don't go well together. Certain things in life do not combine well together. And so here's a few that I came up with, and you can share your ideas with me later on, things that you don't think go well together. Uh, The first is chalk and cheese. That seems to be a traditional understanding. Chalk and cheese don't go well together. Socks and sandals. hope nobody's wearing those this morning. Uh, Salt and wounds. Don't rub salt into wounds. Texting and driving. Toothpaste and orange juice. Anyone made that mistake? Not good. And then law and promise. Law and promise do not go well together. Many times already throughout this letter, Paul has addressed the fact that the Galatians are trying to make law and promise go together. They want to mix God's law and God's promises all into a big pot together. They want to add saving works to saving faith and make a nice blend of the two. And Paul's continual response throughout has been that law and promise don't go together. Certainly not when it Uh, when it comes to what saves a person. They do not mix. Salvation can't depend on both law and promise. If it's by law, it's no longer by promise. If it's by promise, it's no longer by law. But all of this raises a vital question that Paul's now going to answer for us this morning. And it might perhaps be a question that's crossed your mind at some point already in our journey throughout this letter. If law and promise don't mix together for salvation then why did God first give a promise to Abraham and then later give a law to Moses? Why did God give both of these things? Can we be sure that the law that came later doesn't in some way alter or modify or even cancel out the promise that came earlier? Or to put it another way that maybe is even easier to relate to, you might say to yourself, when I read the Old Testament, while I see that Parts of it are about faith and grace and promise. An awful lot of it seems to be taken up with laws and regulations and talk of punishing the disobedient. And I read all that, and that can be worrying, can be unsettling. Which one takes precedence? Which one is the way of salvation and blessing? Which one actually is the central theme of the Bible? How can we be sure this morning that law isn't the main thing, especially when there's so much about the law in the Bible? Or how to put it yet another way, are we meant to read the unfolding storyline of the Bible? If you've ever asked yourself that kind of question, you've asked a really good question, you've asked an important question, because as we're going to see this morning, one major reason the Galatians mixed up grace and law so badly is they'd really mixed up and messed up the whole unfolding storyline of the Bible. They'd messed up the storyline of the Bible. And that's the essence of Paul's argument throughout the second half of chapter 3 this morning. To think that salvation could be by law instead of promise, by works instead of faith, that reveals that someone hasn't yet grasped the fundamental storyline of the Bible. Because when we grasp the storyline, and when we get it all in the right order, 
We won't for a moment think to add law to promise or to add works to faith in order to be saved and blessed by God. Now, uh, to help us think a little bit more visually about this this morning, I thought I'd create for us a physical Bible timeline, and I hope this works and doesn't all fall apart. Um, I wonder actually... Oh, too near the speaker. Are there a couple of maybe uh, crossway members, because uh, you'll be a bit, little bit taller, who would be up for just helping me for a minute to pin some things on here? Any crossway members? You thought there was nothing to do this morning, but now... Isaac, yeah? Anyone else? Oh, Hope? All right, Hope and Isaac. Wonderful. Um, where are my props? Here we go. So we're going to make a bit of a Bible timeline, and this isn't just a novelty, um, but I think it's just so central to what Paul is talking about this morning, so I thought it was really helpful for us to visualize it. So what I'd love you guys to do is begin to... Um, Hang on, let me hold back. There we go. Do you want to start putting those on there with these little pegs? And um, they are in the right order, but between you, see if you can start to peg them along there. You could put some little gaps in between if you think, oh yeah, there was a little bit of a space between these two things. Excellent, and hopefully those that need to see can see. Yeah, looking good. I didn't draw these pictures myself. I thought that would have taken it down a notch. Okay, so... Oh, actually, stop there. I'm just going to make a little gap. Where do we need a gap? We need a gap. Uh, can we move those along a little bit? There we go. Lovely. Oh, actually, they're not in the right order. That one needs to go there. <laughs> you guys have done a better job than I have, though. There we go. Obviously, there are like spaces in between these things. There's much more that happens in the Bible. Um, but can you see here? So we've got the creation. Thank you very much. You did a brilliant job. And if, if there's washing to hang at home, then you will be the people to do it. So... Very simple Bible overview. The creation, the fall, the floods. Um, I've got something for here in a moment. Then we've got the Exodus, God's people being brought out of Egypt. And then, of course, lots of other stuff happening here. And then finally, Jesus coming, his birth and death and resurrection. And then the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And then there's us here. And I should have put a picture of us all, really. But there's us somewhere in the middle, and again, this is fairly long at the moment. It's been 2,000 years, and, but we know that Jesus is coming back in the end. So, so there's the, some main events from the Bible. And then here are two of the most prominent themes. We've got the, the theme of promise through Abraham, and then we've got the theme of law through Moses. And these two themes, I'll pin them on in a moment as to where they first pop up, but they keep recurring all the way through the Bible. Promise and law and promise and law. They, they keep popping up, especially all the way through the Old Testament. And um, the question for this morning, really, let me just pop these on. The question is, which of these two is the most prominent theme? Which of them is the ultimate theme of the Bible? Which of them is... The only way for us to be blessed and the only way for us to be 
uh, rescued and experienced God's salvation. Is it? It's not. We've said they don't, they don't mix well together for salvation. So which is it? Is it through promise or is it through law? And how can we be sure? And again, this is such an important question because Paul is saying that how we view the Christian life and how we live the Christian life depends so much on whether we view the storyline of the Bible as being ultimately about law or promise. God gave both in the Old Testament, but here's the final one we're going to pin on in a little while. But you can see their ultimate theme, the only way of blessing and salvation. Where do we put this? Um, do we put it... Do we attach it to the promise or do we attach it to the law? Where does God put the only way of blessing and salvation? The Galatians have been listening to people that tell them that the law is the ultimate theme. So they want to pin this on the law. That yes, there is a promise. Yes, there is forgiveness and salvation through a gracious promise. But ultimately, that promise, the gospel, is there so that we can have a second chance at living by the law. So we, we made a mess of the law. God came to rescue us so that we could have a second chance of living under the law again. But are they right? Is the overarching theme of the Old Testament and the whole Bible, really, one of us getting back to the law? Or is it simply one of trusting from first to last in a promise? Okay, well, let's turn to Galatians 3. Verses 15 to 25, we're going to find out the answer and find out where to hang this this morning. Galatians 3.15, Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Well, maybe perhaps you can already begin to see and understand Paul's argument and his answer to the question of where to pin this label, whether it's law on the law or on the promise. I've got just two headings this morning, and the first one is a bit of a spoiler. I'm going to spoil the answer right now. First heading is, the promise delivers all the blessing. Verses 15 to 18, the promise delivers all the blessing. That's what Paul says. Uh, and the reason... He gives, the promise delivers all of the blessing, is quite simply because it came first. You see there, that's why I wanted the timeline. 
This is the important part. In fact, people on over there, can you, uh, might help you see better. Very simply, the promise came first. The law came a long time afterwards. And so the promise came with no rules, no requirements, no conditions. And Paul is saying nothing that comes after it can change that. And we all understand this, he says, even from the world of human covenants and promises. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Everyone knows, he's saying, uh, that you can't add conditions to a promise later on that weren't included at the start. That would just be unjust and unfair and unacceptable. This is why children rightly get upset when their brother or sister promises them one day uh, that tomorrow you can uh, play with my toys. So no strings attached, yet tomorrow you can play with my Star Wars Lego. But the next day comes, and then the sibling that's had the promise made to them suddenly finds out now there's a condition attached. Oh, you can play with my Star Wars Lego, but only if you tidy my room and do all of my chores for me and wait on me all day. Even cheated siblings know it's, that's unacceptable to add conditions to a promise that weren't there originally. And we've all been there as adults as well, haven't we? Sometimes uh, some amazing offer is laid out before us on the TV or uh, on a, a pop-up on our computer screens um, or on an advertising billboard. And so we, we leap at the chance to buy the car or win the free holiday or accept the 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 new iPad, only then to find out later on, once we've clicked the link or taken the bait, that there's a lot more being asked of us than was plain in the original promise. If you've ever been sucked into one of those too-good-to-be-true offers, you'll know how wrong and unjust it is. Now, people, of course, people can, can be unjust and very sneaky. Hopefully, human courts of law and legally binding agreements are handled fairly and justly, but the the point is God's word is always most certainly 100% fair and just and unalterable, which means whatever comes after God's promise to Abraham cannot change the promise that God has made. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't break his word. God always keeps his promises. Now, one word that's really worth pausing on and highlighting in this first half of the passage uh, is this word ratified. Did you see that? It's not about pest control. Um, It's about something different. And it's in verse 15 and in verse 17. And it's a really important word because it really highlights how unconditional God's promise to Abraham and his offspring is. To ratify a promise is effectively to put your name to it to sign it, to seal it, to um, yeah, put your name on the contract for everybody to see. I agree to this. I swear to this. Uh, and that's exactly what God did in Genesis 15. In Genesis 12, and again sort of repeated through the next few chapters, God made and repeated his promises to Abraham to make him into a great nation, to bless him, to make him a blessing to others. And ultimately, he said, All of the families of the earth would one day be blessed through Abraham. Well, in Genesis 15, Abraham asked God how he can be sure that God is going to keep his promise. And God doesn't get out a pen to sign his name. He ratifies his promise with the shedding of blood in a covenant ceremony. 
And this is just how it was done back then. So God told Abraham to take a bunch of animals, a cow and a ram and a goat, a dove and a pigeon, to, to cut them in two, so blood is shed, and then to spread out the animals, sort of half and half on each side, to create a pathway that they can walk through. Um, again, this is, this is just how it was done. So the two parties, normally in a, in a covenant, in an agreement, would walk through the, the cut-up animals. And it was a graphic way of saying, if I break my part of the agreement, then may I be cut up and cut off and killed like these animals. Here's what's astonishing, though. Abraham never walks between the cut-up animals. Abraham falls into a deep sleep, deeper even than some of us might fall into on a Sunday morning. And then God alone passes through the animals, through the pieces. This is a covenant, a promise of blessing that relies in no way at all on Abraham, but only on God. A completely one-sided, unconditional promise. God is promising to bless Abraham and his descendants with no strings attached whatsoever. There are no works to do, no laws to obey, no conditions to fulfill on Abraham's part. There's no God saying, I will, if you, I'll do this, if you do that, do these things and I'll bless you, which is what the law sounds like later on. But no, this is just God saying, I will, I will. I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you. And if I don't, well, in passing through the animals, he's saying, if I don't, then I deserve to be torn apart. I, God, deserve to die like these animals. Or to put it another way, God is saying, I would sooner die than break this promise that I'm making to you. Which, of course, one day we can see on our timeline, he did in order to keep the promise and fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. One day he died, sent his son to die. Now, uh, this is all well and good, we might think to ourselves now, and it's very nice for Abraham, isn't it? And it's very nice for his offspring. It's very nice for uh, uh, Isaac and uh, Jacob and those that followed. But isn't it still just law for the rest of us? We live after the time of Moses. Maybe it's just nice for Abraham and his children and grandchildren, but does this really affect us this morning who live beyond the law and, and, and way beyond there again. But look again at verse 16. Look again at who God made the promise to. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. One commentator, Todd Wilson, says this. He says, here then is the key point about God's promises. Christ Jesus is the one true beneficiary of all of God's promises. God has given everything to Christ. Every blessing God wants to give to the world and to you and me has already been given to Jesus. Thus, every blessing we seek, every good thing in the world is to be found in Christ. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. We share in these promises, therefore, by coming to Christ and being found in him. This is union with Christ again. This is those Russian dolls, uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, that we talked about. 
us being in Christ. And so the promised blessings to Abraham, ultimately there were promises given to Christ and now shared by Christ with all who are united with him by faith. This unconditional promise to Abraham is a promise made to everyone down the ages who puts their trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter that the law pops up there somewhere in the middle. We'll get to why the law is there in a few moments, but it doesn't matter. That doesn't affect the promise and the unconditional nature of what God has promised us through Jesus. The only true way into Abraham's family, the only true way into God's family and into God's ultimate blessing is not through the law, but through faith in the promise, through faith in Jesus. As Paul's going to say later on, verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then we're going to look at those verses next week some more and see our new identity uh, who it is now is that we're sons and heirs with Jesus. But here's the main thing for now. The promise is the ultimate theme. Uh, the promise is the only way of salvation and of experiencing God's blessing. It's the only way of us experiencing the blessing of salvation through Jesus, that promise. All of which might leave us with one big burning question. Uh, and it's a question which Paul anticipates. If the blessing of God, if, if salvation and justification and life forever with God comes entirely through trusting in the promise, trusting in Jesus to whom the promise points, then why, oh why, did God ever give his people the law? Why did he give the law there in the middle? And the answer is found in verses 19 to 25. And, and in the second of our two headings this morning, Second of all then this morning, the law was given to drive us to faith in Jesus. Was the law some kind of temporary experiment there in the middle? Did God change his mind for a while and think, Hang, I'll set up a, a second way of salvation and then oh, I didn't actually work anyway, so we'll come back to the original plan. No, it's not that at all, says Paul. In fact, he says the law isn't contrary to the promises of God. Once we understand why the law was given. Verse 21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Then, then there would be a clash. There would actually be two contradictory ways of salvation in the Bible. But that wasn't why the law was given. It wasn't given to give life or save us. It wasn't given to replace or alter or improve the promise in any way. It was given, verse 19 says, to reveal transgressions. Transgression, you might know, is, is just another word for sin. But it's one that especially captures the idea of stepping aside from the perfect standard, going off, off track, off the path, away from the perfect standard. The law reveals God's perfect standard. But it also reveals it, not so that we would pull ourselves together and keep it or get back on the path. It reveals God's perfect standards so that we would see even more clearly than ever before that however hard we try, we cannot keep God's law. We cannot keep God's perfect standard. 
Paul expands on this in the letters of the Romans. Uh, Romans 3 verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, but through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 7 verse 7, if it had not been for the law, Paul says, I would not have known sin. And Romans 7.13, the law was given in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. John Stott says the law exposed sin. It's like opening up something horrible and moldy and festering. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. Without the law, we wouldn't know just how wretched our sin is. And so we wouldn't know how much we need a saviour. Those who don't know the crimes they've committed don't know that they need pardoning. Those who don't know the poison they've ingested don't know that they need healing, a remedy. The law is absolutely necessary, but not as a ladder to climb our way to heaven. It's necessary like a thermometer to show us how sick we really are. That's why Jesus said, Mark 2 verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Bible is so clear, isn't it? That the the law is there to make this even clearer to us that everybody is terminally sick with sin. But unfortunately, so many people, both in Jesus' day and still in ours, don't realize that this is the case. Even the Pharisees, who knew the law better than most people, completely misunderstood its purpose. And so they mishandled it and misused it. Todd Wilson says, Even good things can become bad when we use them for something they were never intended to do. Charles Spurgeon, he said, had a nice way of capturing this thought. He liked to say, A handsaw is a good thing, but not to shave with. A handsaw is good for cutting wood, but not facial hair. And if you put your handsaw to that sort of use, you'll wind up losing more than hair. A good thing is not good out of place. And if that's true with a handsaw, how much more God's law? So the law wasn't given to save us. It was given to show us we needed saving. It wasn't given to inspire us, but to indict us. It wasn't given to be our justifier, but our jailer. It wasn't given to free us, but to reveal sin's deadly grip upon us. And then Paul adds two more vivid illustrations. First of all, he compares the law to a prison guard with us as its prisoner. Verse 22, the law, the scripture, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law held God's Old Testament people prisoner. Having revealed the seriousness of their sin, it put them in a holding cell killing, hopefully, any false hope in them that they had of earning God's blessing so that they would know even more surely than ever that they needed to wait and look to the one who would come to break them out of their prison. What they needed was a rescuer to bring them freedom. 
The law was there to tell them this. The law was there to tell them, you've got to look to the very rescuer to whom the, the, the promise to Abraham was pointing all along like a big neon flashing sign over the top of the law and all the way to Jesus' coming. That's where the promise is pointing. And the law is saying, look back to the promise and then look on to where the promise is heading. Look to the coming Messiah. And then the second illustration Paul uses is that of the law being a guardian or tutor, verse 24. Uh, and that we're going to explore a bit more again next week. But all we need to understand for now is that in Paul's day, a guardian uh, wasn't a soft and cuddly substitute parent. It wasn't a very nice childminder. It was a servant employed in the household to be a hard taskmaster who had special responsibility for disciplining the children when they stepped out of line and didn't do what they were supposed to do. So we've got a picture, not a sweet little babysitter, like maybe some of you younger kids have come look after you. The babysitters in our church are wonderful. Uh, don't picture a, a rosy-faced primary school teacher. Picture a bright red-faced drill sergeant, who, as one writer puts it, has the bark of a German shepherd and the bite of a Doberman. Okay, so like the jailer, it's not an appealing picture, is it? The jailer, the guardian, but it's serving a vital purpose for a reason and for a season to drive God's people to faith in the coming Messiah, to prepare them for Jesus. Verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And that's really Paul's final thrust in this morning's passage. The Mosaic law, even when we understand that it had a purpose, also had an expiry date. So uh, it came after the promise, it doesn't alter the promise, but it also expired on Christ's arrival. Its use-by date is past. This, this milk, this law, it's gone off, it's gone moldy. Its time has gone, you've got to throw it away. The age of the law keeping God's people in a holding cell and under its tutorship while they wait for Christ has ended. God's people have been set free. We have come into our inheritance. We've come into the fullness of the blessing that, that was promised. The gospel was preached 2,000 years earlier to Abraham. But now it's been realized in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, his offspring. Christ came and died and rose for sinners. And so he opened the floodgates of God's mercy to all who come to him now to be justified by faith. Verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So here's the thing. There is no going back for us to go live under the Mosaic law like the Galatians were trying to do with food laws and circumcision and all of that, uh, even with a right view of the law, and the Galatians had the wrong view, they thought they had to do it to be saved, but even with a right view, there's no going back. The times have moved on. The storyline of redemptive history has entered a whole new era, a far better era, a new age of faith and adoption of God's people being sons and heirs indwelt by the Spirit, and growing in obedience through faith in Jesus. All of which means we have the privilege of living in the most glorious, 
privileged and liberating stage of salvation history that there is, that there has ever been. And we're meant to live in the good of the age in which we live. Look at the us all the way down there between Jesus' first and second coming with the gift of the Spirit with us as well. That's the message of this morning's passage. Live in the good of this. Live by faith in Jesus. Live in the good of the gospel. Live as sons and daughters, not slaves. Live as heirs according to the promise. And as we finish, I just think this morning's passage raises then three important questions, application questions for us, just very briefly. First of all, let me ask you, has God's law revealed your sin to you? Have you looked, have you looked into God's good and holy law and allowed it to expose your sin? I don't mean to expose your sin to other people, but to expose it to you. Have you allowed it to lift the lid off your respectability and reveal to you what's hidden underneath? That you are, like all of us, sinful, rebellious, guilty, under God's judgment and helpless to save yourself. If you've never recognized how serious your sin is and how powerless you are to save yourself, you're not yet a Christian. But God wants to show you because he wants to save you. And he's given us his law not to encourage self-improvement and how to do better in life. No, he wants to move us to sorrow and surrender and drive us as swiftly as possible towards faith in his son Jesus. Let God's law do its work in you if you're not yet a Christian. Let it drive you not to yourself, not to works, not to religion, but to Jesus for rescue and for everlasting forgiveness. Okay, second application question, and this is much more for us if we're already Christians here this morning. Are we still trying to earn God's blessing and approval? Are we still at times misusing the law, trying to make it the means by which we earn God's acceptance? We must take heed of God's word to us this morning. When we try to go back to living under the law, to earn his blessing, not only are we trying to live in the wrong era of salvation history, but as we've seen, the law was never intended to work like that anyway, even when it was uh, somewhat in control. There never was a law given that could give us life and make us righteous and earn God's blessing and approval. So let's not misuse it. Let's stop misusing it. As Spurgeon said, let's stop trying to shave with a handsaw. We will do ourselves untold injuries in our Christian walk. By all means, let's read the law and use it as God intends it. It reveals his holy character. It's meant to freshly convict us of our sins and our failings. It's meant to remind us, lest we begin to forget, that salvation is based not on our performance, but can only be based on his promises and then drive us back again and again to faith in Jesus. Let's use it to cut wood. Don't use it to shave. Uh, to adapt a well-known slogan from Gillette, but turn it on its head, the, the law is not the best a Christian can get. We have been saved to live not by the law, but the promise. To live by the Spirit. To live by faith in Jesus, where there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then third and final application question this morning. Are we reading every part of the Bible confident that it's all about Christ, all about Jesus? As we've just seen, the Bible's own testimony is that it's not fundamentally a book of rules and laws. It's a book about grace and promise. The most incredible grace through the most incredible promises. 
It's not primarily about what we can do. It's about what God has done in Jesus. Are we reading it each day with that kind of um, eager expectation, with those kind of glasses on, looking for Jesus on every page? It's not a new or a novel idea. It's not something that people just came up with 20 years ago to read the Bible in a gospel-centered way, in a promise-centered way, in a Jesus-centered way. That's not a gimmick to look for signposts to Jesus. It's the only way to read the Bible rightly. It's how God wrote it and intends for us to read it and use it. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is, is the story of promises made and promises kept in Jesus. God's promises are its ultimate theme. It's all about him. So let me encourage you, just a practical one. If you don't yet have the storyline of the Bible so clear in your head and rightly ordered, go and study it. Go back and look for it and grow in it. Maybe even pick up a book alongside the Bible itself that will help you. Uh, There's plenty of books. God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts, According to Plan, Graham Goldsworthy. The God Who Is There, D.A. Carson, From Creation to New Creation, Tim Chester. All of these books just help us get this in our heads in the right order. It will do wonders for our assurance. And it will undoubtedly stir us the more we see it to even greater depths of love and gratitude and faith and worship towards our Savior. I trust that that's something of the effect even as we've looked at this one passage this morning. Well, let's pray. Let's ask God to use these things to deepen our confidence in his promises about his son, our Savior. Father, we thank you that you have made a way right from the very beginning for us to be saved and justified and blessed forever, not by works of the law, but solely by faith in your promise. Promises which are yes and amen in Jesus Oh Lord, please keep us from the temptation to try and earn your blessing and favor when we already have it completely in your Son. And help us, we pray, to read every page of your word, knowing that it's ultimately all about your grace and your promises and our great and precious Redeemer. In his name and for his glory we pray. Amen.